It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. The week's most interesting interviews with senators, commentators, and newsmakers. Giving you a replay just in case you missed it. The Guy Benson Show. With us now, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, author of the book Fortitude. And Congressman, welcome back to the show. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me, guys. You bet. All right, let's start with some policy and then maybe get to a little politics. We'll start with the border crisis, which we've been talking about a lot here on the show. For good reason. The crisis is as bad or worse as it's ever been. The last few months since the start of the new fiscal year, the numbers have been jaw-dropping, even compared to the exploding numbers last year. The number of known gotaways has mushroomed in a way that is completely unsustainable. And then, of course, there's the expiration of Title 42 in a matter of days that basically everyone acknowledges, even many Democrats, will make the catastrophe far worse. You represent the state of Texas, a border state. I know the administration seems to just not care about this issue at all, but the policy is what it is. The implications are what they are. What are you seeing and hearing when you talk to constituents and border officials on this issue? Yeah, like this, this continues to get worse. It continues to be on everyone's mind. It's, it's certainly one of our top issues um, in the country. And it's frustrating as hell because, you know, you, like, you can keep throwing out all these numbers. And, they, and at a certain point, they just become incomprehensible. Um, it, it, it becomes harder and harder to imagine hundreds of thousands of people into the millions of people. And what a disaster this is, just for our basic sense of sovereignty and fairness. You know, let's just boil this down to what it really is. It's it's it's, a, it's an infringement on basic sense of sovereignty, and it's unfair to legal migrants. It's unfair to people who legally want to claim asylum, who have a real asylum claim. Uh, it just tell, it gives off the message that you can just cut the line and you'll be fine. Um, and it, it's it's harmful to our border counties, for sure. It hurts their infrastructure. It's, it's, it's obviously spreading throughout the country. I know everybody says they're in a border state, but... No, we're like Texas is really the focal point of this crisis. So what do you hear from border officials and well, border patrol? What you hear is is just pure demoralization. Um, you know, you saw what an icy reception Mayorkas got when he went down to, to the border this week um, because border agents know that he does not have their back, that he refuses to implement policies that, that would that would allow them to do their jobs. Right now, they're just told to just basically just process illegal immigrants, have them come in, process them, let them go. You know, that's not what Border Patrol is supposed to do. Border Patrol is designed to protect the border. Customs is supposed to process people, and if you don't have the paperwork, you go, you go back the other way. That, that's what a rational border looks like. And, you know, this administration has all the tools they need to, to get it back to a rational state. New legislation would help, but it's really just implementing the policy. Um, you know, we're working – like, I'm running for Homeland Security chairman right now. Um, I, I think I think uh, with the focal point of the crisis being in Texas, my experience on the issue, be well suited to deal with it. And um, one of the things I'm pointing out is is the need for better foreign policy, better diplomatic relations, better negotiation, better leverage with uh, other governments, especially the Mexican government, for a few reasons. One, like I shared a video this week that a friend of a friend sent me, where it shows the Mexican government, Mexican police escorting buses of migrants right to our border. So you know, because they don't want them just just hanging out in Mexico. They want to just get them to the border and be done with it. Yeah, they want them here. Is, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, because, you know, because they know it's open. So they're like, well, we're not going to. They're like, the Americans aren't even asking for help. So why would we give it? Now, under Trump, it was a different story. 
So all this takes is some negotiating. That's all it takes. The Biden administration won't do it. There's another angle here, too, which is the cartels. The cartels facilitate this immigration crisis. They make a lot of money off of it. Um, and now they've also moved into the fentanyl business in the last few years, as everybody knows. And uh, that's an 80,000 um, dead Americans a year type of problem. Uh, so I've introduced legislation that's literally called Declaring War on the Cartels Act it would give us the additional tools necessary to, to go after them legally and to go after Mexican government officials that aid and abet them. We have to escalate this. And, you know, especially when you're looking at the cartels, I don't understand why Democrats would be against this. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of Democrats about this bill. I've talked to a lot of Democrats about this new, this kind of change in direction. And, you know, you, you, might, you might get some nods here and there, but we'll see. We'll put their feet to the fire. Because I'm trying to give them a common enemy here. This is a clear and present danger right at our border. It's killing 80,000 Americans a year. Help us at least. If you don't want to do immigration reform, at least let's help us target the cartels and encourage the Mexican government to do the same. So there's just multi -as multiple aspects to this problem. Okay? The administration, to the extent that they talk about this at all, usually when asked, they will typically pivot straight to their talking point, which is this is Congress's fault. Republicans won't play ball. Republicans don't want to make a deal, and so it's the Republicans' fault. That's their talking point. Uh, you know, I could probably go on for an hour about why it's wrong. In a nutshell, as one of those congressional Republicans being blamed, what's your response? Yeah, well, you know, the other thing they say is we, we just go down there to, for publicity stunts when we go to the border. We don't actually have a plan. We're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, we have a very detailed plan. You know, the other day, we, the Texas delegation got together. We, we basically combined all of the good, decent border and immigration legislation um, that deals specifically with just border security that, it's, that, that people have put forth over the course of years. And we said, look, this is, a, this is a solid Texas border plan. If you implement all of these policies, the border will be secure. It's not an immigration reform. It's just, it's just a secure border. I don't see why that's partisan. The Democrats will say, well, you don't want to play ball because, you know, you've you got to have immigration reform included. Why? Really, why? Like, what is your what is your governing philosophy reason? Like, what is the underlying principle that you're abiding by to say that one has to come with the other? That's nonsense. And to the extent that they're willing to do anything, it's like, okay, tell you what, we'll we'll do more money for the border, which is, uh, this is like the, the Tillis Cinema deal, more money for the border for Dreamers. Now, <laughs> you, you got to be careful about about what we think, because a lot of people think, oh, we, we just need to spend more money and it'll solve it. You know, cause what do you hear all the time, even from our own side? It's like, well, we're spending all this money in Ukraine. Why don't we just spend money at the border? Why can't we do that? Because the money actually isn't the problem. It's, it's the policy that is the problem. Does some legislation right. need to be changed? Yes. I have, some, I have some legislation that would fix a lot of our asylum loopholes, for instance. But they have all the tools they need. They don't need to change a lot of laws to get, to get a hold of this problem. It comes down to some very basic disincentives. When people cross, you have to send them back. Not just like right across the border. So a lot of people are saying, like, why do we even let them cross? And I'm like, well, you, you could stop them, but then they'll just go a mile down the road and cross there. That, that actually won't solve the problem. You actually have to deport them. You have to repatriate them either back to Mexico City, which is the remain in Mexico policy, or back to their home country. And this takes a few extra steps. This takes the State Department doing its job and actually establishing those routes. So ICE could have all the funding in the world, all the airplanes it needed, and have the actual orders to deport people. But if the State Department doesn't make sure that there's a landing strip for that to happen, then it won't happen. This is also well, there's why, no political you know, will for it. They're, they're like, no, actively exactly. against it in this administration. But yeah, that's exactly the problem. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is there is no legislation necessarily needed to even fix the problem. They can just fix it. Like, we, I'm happy to pass a bunch of things that makes it easier to fix. 
but they can fix it. It is absolutely political will. This is done on purpose. They purposely don't want to make it easier to, to, to fill those flights from ICE and send people back. They don't want to create those disincentives. They're allowing the Mexican government to just bust hordes and hordes of people right to the border. They know it's happening, uh, and they're allowing it. You know, there's, and so it's, it's frustrating as hell, but when you, this is why when 2024 comes up, you got to get out and vote. I mean, this is, this is an existential issue in a certain many ways. Congressman, let's talk about another issue related to national security. I know that you have said a lot about it. We've covered it here as well. Just want to give you the platform just to walk through your thoughts and your thought process on the Brittany Griner prisoner swap that the Biden administration pulled off a couple days ago. You know, I've been saying basically every time it comes up that I'm thrilled for her and her family and her loved ones. And if I were in that boat, I would want the U.S. government to do anything to get her back. And as a fellow American, I'm thrilled that she's home. But if that's the end of the story, as far as the American public is concerned, I think that's kind of a distortion of some of the externalities involved in what happened, specifically in this exchange, who the other guy was, who wasn't exchanged on the American side. And you were just talking about incentives at the border crisis. There's also an incentives problem, in my mind, at play here as well. Yeah, there, there absolutely is, and you know, I'm not sure I have any uh, original thoughts for you, but I'll, I'll I'll be in violent agreement with you on on the strategic implications of this trade, and they are this: like, when anytime you do a prisoner swap, it, it, it has to be in like an in kind prisoner swap. There, there, it has to be comparable. So if you're gonna if you're gonna give away a, a notorious weapons dealer that's responsible for the death of tens of thousands of women and children and genocides in Africa, also also accused of um, conspiring to kill Americans with the weapons that he's selling. He was number two on the most wanted list just behind Osama bin Laden. It's a, it's a pretty serious criminal that we're talking about, terrorist, criminal, whatever. Um, you want someone back who is at least some – now, obviously, we don't have a lot of American serious criminals that we're trying to get back, but maybe we have uh, service members. Um, you know, you, everybody's looking at, the, at Paul Wheel and the ex-Marine. You know, he was charged with espionage. Whether or not he was conducting espionage remains unknown. I, he says it, it was not true. But at least that would be somewhat close to being in kind. I would argue that you probably need all three Americans back to even come close to the level of, of letting the merchant of death go. But and, – and, and it's not it's not just, oh, because it's fair, right? There, there's, there's actually strategic implications in this because you got to look further down the road than just this trade. You have to look at all of our prisoners all over the world held by despotic regimes and, and, and how this changes their calculations going forward when they start to negotiate with you. And obviously it tells them that they don't have to give as much as they previously thought they did. That's a real problem. So by doing this stupid trade, and, and, and we all know why he did it. You know, like it, it, she, she fits a lot of the intersectional checkboxes. Um, it would be more popular with his base if he gets her versus this, this other guy. And um, you know that's how his base sees it. Um, that's how he sees it, and it's, it's superficial and foolish and unfortunate. Um, but because they did that, they've 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 created very negative strategic implications for the future. Yep. And by the way, that's not Dan Crenshaw saying what they're motivated by on the other side. They've said it themselves. I mean, it was a huge part of their messaging and their talking points yeah. coming out of this trade, focusing on you know her identity characteristics rather than anything else in terms of strategy or national interest you know they they have been very open in terms of advertising it and we're simply noticing what they're saying and relaying that to you congressman dan crenshaw our guest republican of texas when we return let's talk about domestic politics the race for speaker in the house electoral politics that's all coming up with congressman crenshaw right after this 
happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. We are back with Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. All right, closer to home here, Congressman, a few political questions for you. Kevin McCarthy's in this battle to become Speaker of the House. Seems like there are a couple hardliner kind of right-wing guys in the caucus who aren't interested in him being Speaker. They want to vote against him no matter what. They're threatening to do that. Uh, You know, it's a very small majority, as we know, not a lot of margin for error. How does this play out? Is McCarthy going to be speaker? It just seems like there's a lot of drama and a lot of uncertainty here. Yeah, and I just want to be really clear with everybody about how to interpret what's going on. The speaker's race is between two people. It's between Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries. There is no one else in the speaker's race. So for anyone who claims to be a Republican who is not supporting Kevin McCarthy, you are therefore supporting Hakeem Jeffries. By the way, that's a Democrat, just, just in case no one knew that. Yeah. Uh, he's a pretty leader. liberal Democrat. Um, he's going to be the Democrat leader. Um, they stick together. You know, when they, when they, have, when they go internally and they, they do their vote and they have their vote, I'm sure some people voted against Hakeem Jeffries. Do you know what those people are going to do, those Democrats, when the time comes to actually have the election on January 3rd? They're going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries. And anyone on our side who does not vote for Kevin McCarthy, who won the the race on our side, it's it's like having a primary. There's no other way to interpret this. We had our primary. Now there's a general election. He won with about 85 percent of the vote. Anyone who does not vote for Kevin McCarthy is thereby enabling and voting for Democrats. There is no other way to interpret this. There is no other option. Um, I this happens a lot, right? They want to extract promises, but. You know, I mean, geez, I mean, this is a longer discussion, but I would tell them is, you know, if, if you want influence, if you want to extract promises, maybe try making some friends. <laughs> you know, you can't, can't come to the table, throw food at everyone, then leave the table and wonder why you're not invited back. Um, and so, is there any you know, possibility the, the, in your mind, Congressman, that at some point some moderate Republicans get together with Democrats and say, okay, we have a stalemate here. Let's make a very moderate Republican speaker. We'll get some of your votes. It won't be McCarthy. It won't be anyone to his right. It'll be someone to his left. Is that a realistic, at least, threat on the other side of this? It's happened before. Uh, there's, there's, it was actually part of the arguments of a lot of a lot of Republicans here getting up and saying what they've seen happen in their own states, their own state legislatures. This is exactly what has happened before. Um, you know, because it, it, it's the only second. It's still an unlikely option, but it still is the only other option. So, you know, you're not – is what I would tell these folks who just refuse to vote for McCarthy. Like you're not accomplishing anything here. You're, you're making us look foolish. You're making us look disunited. Um, you're, you're distracting from the issues that people actually care about. You know, I'm, I was like, well, you go back to your district, and you ask every person in your district what their top ten issues are that they think about. And, and you tell me that Kevin McCarthy's name comes up in any of those issues. Oh, I know. The people doesn't. cry out for Speaker Biggs or, you know, whatever. It's just – it's yeah, not happening. It's all Congressman, it's, it's nonsense. I know you've got to run very quickly. I just want to read to you a statistic that I saw highlighted by John McCormick at National Review. This is from a New York Times analysis. Quote, Republican candidates won the most votes for U.S. House in all four of the crucial Senate states where Republicans fell short, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, meaning in those four states, Republicans won the quote-unquote popular vote combined in all the House races put together but lost all four of those Senate races. As you look back at what was an underwhelming November for the Republican Party based on expectations and history and political environment and all of that, what is maybe your number one takeaway for the next time we do this in 2024? 
Yeah, look, I I really don't think there's any mysteries here. Um, The the stat that you just laid out is one of many that indicate the same thing, is that general election voters are pretty discerning about the candidate. This is true every single time, right? You can vote for your favorite, like, fire breather in the primary and think you're doing, you know, this is is great, we're going to be so awesome. But then general election voters think differently, right? They, they look at a number of different qualifications. They look at personality. They look at leadership. They look at history. They just look at a lot of different things more holistically. And you have to elect the most conservative candidate. That can also win. You know, in Georgia, the Republicans won, like, overwhelmingly in every other category except the Senate race. Um, this is not rocket science. It just isn't. I mean, it's, it's just you pick good candidates that are, that are fairly normal Republicans, um, that, are, that stand strong for conservative values, but don't but don't go out of their way to alienate moderates with this like endless bitter fighting that's that's quite meaningless most of the time, right? It's like die yeah. on every hill so I can prove to you that I'm a fighter. Well, you know it would be great if you fought and won. How about yeah, that? and that's the thing is you know? people people might not like what the lessons are from the election, but the voters in these states could not have been any clearer. And if you want to have power and do anything in politics. You have to win elections in general elections, not just in primary fights. We've got to leave it there for now. That's a much longer conversation that we can probably continue sometime soon. In the meantime, Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, our guest. Thank you so much for your time. If we don't talk before Christmas, have a very Merry Christmas, and we'll catch up in the new year. Hey, great talking to you guys. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. That was this week's edition of the Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. For more Guy Benson Show, go to GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.